God, we are uh, grateful for you, grateful for the way you love and you care for us and you guide us. You give us things to do and you give us uh, yourself to put our trust in. Pray that you would just encourage us through the rest of our morning together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Nahum Tate was only trying to help. Uh, Nahum Tate, he knew what the world wanted, and he was prepared to give it to them. You've probably heard of Romeo and Juliet, the classic play by Shakespeare, and maybe you were even forced to read King Lear in English class, also by Shakespeare. But you've probably never heard of those plays by Nahum Tate. Nahum Tate was a writer, and he was a man who liked Justice. You could probably tell by his wig that he was a guy who followed the trends of the times. And in his time, there was a big trend towards justice, uh, specifically towards what we call poetic justice, where the bad guy always loses, the good guy always wins, everybody gets what they deserve. And so Nahum Tate, he thought, Shakespeare, he's an okay writer, but he could use a little help. And so his plays are okay, but they lack the one thing that people really want. They lack justice. You know, in Romeo and Juliet, six people die needlessly, including Romeo and Juliet. Well, for Nahum Tate, that just wouldn't work at all. So he rewrote the ending of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, They get married, uh, the families all make up, and everybody lives happily ever after. Because that's what we want for them. That's poetic justice. Uh, Nahum Tate did the same thing for other of Shakespeare's plays. Eight people die at the end of King Lear. But don't we have enough senseless violence in the world already? I mean, that's what Nahum Tate thought anyway. And so in his version, everybody makes up, they all work out their problems, and everybody lives happily ever after. Poetic justice, it makes us feel good. Everybody gets what they deserve. The bad guys are punished. The good guys win. It all ends happily ever after. Nahum Tate's revised version of Shakespeare's classics were wildly popular at the time he created them because we all love poetic justice. If only it worked like that in the real world. Right? There is justice in the world, of course, but it's not always poetic justice. It's not always everybody gets what they deserve. We want the world to operate like, like playing a country music song backwards. You get your wife back, you get your truck back, you get your dog back, you know. <laughs> poetic justice, it just feels good. It's the way we want to live, or at least it's the way we think we want to live. Even today, poetic justice is wildly popular. As soon as we see something that looks like injustice in the world, the same cycle happens over and over again, right? People get on Facebook and they post articles, as if anybody ever pays attention to other people on Facebook. But They post articles, strongly worded articles about how this situation is terrible or or we should do something about that situation. And then another group of people get on Facebook and they post articles about how wrong this first group of people are. We should really think about the situation like this, right? It just back and forth. And then we've got that one friend who's maybe a little more well-read or a little more intellectual than the rest of us, and they post a uh, thoughtful, nuanced, well-written article that kind of tells us maybe how we should think about it. But by then, it's too late because everybody's already made up their mind. We all want to try to create neat and tidy poetic justice where everybody gets what they deserved. But throughout this series, we've talked about our putting our faith 
in God. And if we're putting our faith in God, we have to be willing to let go of poetic justice. Because poetic justice, it's really a lot more like karma than it is like the way God works in the world. We've learned from our study of Esther that God is in control. He's at work behind the scenes, and the way he works is not always so neat and tidy. We can't always draw a straight line from our actions to our outcomes. As the proverb says, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And as we move through our study of Esther, we're going to see that God's justice is a lot different and a lot more satisfying than we might imagine. Uh, There's a little bit of Nahum Tate in all of us, a desire to see things work out in a way that's neat and tidy and doesn't have any loose sins. But that's not always the way that God works. We've come to a point in the study of Esther where something has to happen. Uh, Everything has been building to this point. Uh, Esther and Mordecai are in danger. Haman is coming to the king to ask for Mordecai's death. Uh, Esther has made this decision to put her faith in God's purpose, to confront the king with uh, the truth about Haman and the truth about herself. She threw this banquet for the three of them. She's put her faith in God's plan. She's being patient, waiting for just the right moment to confront King Xerxes. And, And Esther's put her faith in God. She's doing everything she can to bring about justice for herself and for her people. So let's pick up the story of Esther. We're going to be in chapter 6 starting in verse 1. You'll see the the verses on the screen. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found, recorded there, that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and let them lead the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and get the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you've recommended. So Haman got the robe uh, and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. He told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So for the good guys, 
This is a big win. I mean, Haman is humiliated in the most ironic way possible, and it's fun. I mean, you can, you can hear the author smiling as you read this. You know, back in chapter 2, Mordecai had risked his own life to protect King Xerxes from this assassination attempt, and now at just the right moment, he's being honored, and we love it. We love it because Haman, who has nothing but pride, he gets knocked down the ladder a few rungs uh, by having to march this horse and Mordecai up and down the city streets. I mean, the, the very person he hates most in the world he has to publicly honor. This feels like some real poetic justice. But notice the very end of the chapter. It, it ends on a slightly ominous note. Haman, after his humiliation, he has to rush away to this banquet that Esther has prepared, the banquet where she'll finally beg the king for mercy towards her and all the Jews. So even though we have this great poetic justice moment, we need to hold off on celebrating too much. The biggest decision is still yet to be made. Let's look at chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up, to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. Now this feels good. Really, the, the, good, uh, the bad guy gets what he deserved, right? Just the way Nahum Tate would have written it. The king finally sees Haman for who he truly is, and, and as the king storms out, he's trying to figure out how he can save face after Haman talked him into this uh, ridiculous decree to kill all the Jews. And at just the right moment, uh, Haman uh, is there begging for mercy in this compromised position. The king comes in, and he takes swift action. It feels like sweet, sweet poetic justice. But there are still a few loose ends. I mean, all the Jews, including Esther and Mordecai, they're still at risk. No decision has been made there. All this poetic justice with Haman is just icing on the cake. But the problem is there's no cake yet. So there are some positive changes, some signs that that point to, to deliverance of God's people. But this is not yet a victory, not the end goal. Because God's justice is not always as neat and as tidy as we would like. Esther and Mordecai, and indeed all the Jews, have been fasting and praying and working for deliverance. They've all been putting their faith in God, and it all builds up to this moment. This this second banquet with Xerxes, with Haman, and Esther. Esther's done exactly what she should have. She's boldly done what God has asked of her. And we can see that God's at work, 
but there's not yet total justice. We still find ourselves waiting. And this leads us to really our big idea. This week, we're we're filling in the blank of our sermon series by putting our faith in God's perspective, not in our preparation. In God's perspective and not in our preparation. Let me explain what I mean. First, putting our faith in God's perspective. You know, God has an eternal perspective. He's big enough, he's wise enough to, to see beyond time, to see things we can't possibly even know yet. And so when we search desperately for meaning and for neat and tidy justice, we may not realize all that God is up to. Uh, Sometimes we see clues, sometimes we don't. But putting our faith in God's perspective means we have to be willing to give up a little bit of understanding, trusting that God is up to something good. Uh, Randy Alcorn, he's a pastor in Oregon, he talks a lot about this. In fact, he has an entire ministry built on this idea called eternal perspective. And he says it this way, he says, life on earth is a dot. Uh, it, It begins, it ends, it's brief. But life in heaven is an unending line that extends from that dot. And all of us have a life in the dot. Every person has a life that's a dot. And for those of us who follow Jesus, those who have a relationship with God through Christ, we realize there's more than just the dot. There's a line that extends forever. And so all of us, even though we live in the dot, we don't want to live for the dot. We want to live for the line, keeping an eternal perspective. That's what it means to put our faith in God's perspective, because God lives in the line. He he lives forever, and his sense of justice lives forever. It will last forever. God's justice is not always neat and tidy in the here and now, in the dot. And and for those of us who are are trying to understand, we don't want to just live in the dot and and keep our sense of justice and and who God is in the dot. We want to have an eternal perspective, putting our faith in God's perspective. You know, the most beautiful part of this story of Esther is what happens when nobody's paying any attention. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. After all the things that Esther has risked, after all the sacrifices that she and Mordecai have made, this is how God chooses to start the plan, with a sleepless night for King Xerxes. And frankly, for a guy who drinks as much as he does, a sleepless night has to be an act of God. God uses this sleepless night to begin the plan to bring about justice for his people. And the author of Esther, the person who recorded her story, understood the significance of this sleepless night. And in fact, the entire book is built around it. This book is written in a a unique structure we call a chiasmus. There's not going to be a test or anything. But the chiasmus, it's it's a literary device in which the the elements of the story are repeated, but they're repeated in reverse order. Uh, For example, consider this bit of advice. Never let a fool kiss you or a kiss fool you. That's good advice, and it's a good example of a chiasmus, because the, the second half has the elements in reverse order from the first half, right? So it turns out the whole book of Esther it, it functions in this way. It's one big chiasmus. Take a look at this chart. Uh, looking at this, you can see the entire book of Esther is a chiasmus in which the events of the first half of the book are in reverse in the second half. Uh, sorry if that spoils the ending for you. But the king, he makes a decree that all the Jews will be attacked and killed. That's reversed. Haman and Mordecai clash. It looks like Haman's the victor. Then that's reversed. 
But notice what's at the center of this, part D on the chart. This one night at the beginning of chapter 6 in which the king can't sleep. So in spite of all the efforts of Esther and Mordecai, God alone is the one who gets the plan in motion. He's the one who has the right perspective, and he's the one who's ultimately in control. He's the one who gets all the credit. So let's stop fooling ourselves into thinking that we understand what God is up to, and let's instead focus that energy into putting our faith in him and in his perspective. When we put our faith in God's perspective, then we can meet the future with joy and with anticipation and not with fear and worry. And who among us doesn't need more joy and less worry in their lives? Putting our faith in God's perspective is key. But there is another half of our big idea, putting our faith in God's perspective and not in our preparation. We don't want to only trust in our preparation. It's so easy when we're up against the wall or we can't see God at work to just do what we think is right and hope for the best. And, and really, in some sense, that's what Esther has done. She sought God diligently. She's trying to follow his leading. I mean, this, this whole idea of a banquet with the king and with Haman came from her seeking God. The whole idea of a second banquet. But, but notice this. Esther doesn't even appear in chapter 6. Chapter 5 and chapter 7 are focused on, on her and her attempts to save the day. But ultimately, God's the one who takes charge. In this crucial turning point, she's asleep while God is doing his best work. I'm not going to lie, that's a bit humbling. You know, as our country celebrates Independence Day this weekend, we have to acknowledge that as individuals, we are very dependent on God. God allows us to be used by him. He wants us to draw closer to him so that we can be a part of his plans, but never let us lose sight of the fact that God can do what God wants to do. There's a real tension between human action, you know, how much of the world we control, and God's action, how much of the world he controls. I mean, we know that God has given us a free will, and it's really free. If it was, you know, not really free, but God called it a free will, that wouldn't work out. But it is really free will, so free to the point that we could even uh, completely and utterly reject him if we choose to. We really have free will. But even with that, the more free we get, the more we realize how dependent we are on God. He gives us everything we need, even the, the breath in our lungs. So it's okay, and it's right, and it's wise to work, to prepare, to continue to seek God. But we want to make sure our faith is not only in our preparation, but is primarily in God's perspective. So there's a tension here, a tension between the work we do, the part we play, and the part God plays. And we've learned over and over from the story of Esther that God's part is big. God is ultimately in control, but that doesn't mean that we're helpless pawns. We have a role to play, and the more closely connected we are to God, the more of a role he gives us in doing his work. But each and every one of us has some things that we can do. And as we reflect on this part of the story of Esther, these truths about God and his eternal perspective, I want to share one particular way that we can respond. If we know that God seeks justice, if we know that God is a God who has an eternal perspective on justice, then we should be willing to partner with God in pursuing justice. Ultimately, that's what God desires. He desires us to trust him enough to partner with him in, in his work. And, and he can use any means he desires to accomplish his will, but he delights to partner with his people who love and obey him. He knows it's for our best interest to be a part of God's work in the world. So our willingness to partner with God in pursuing justice is a really critical response to his word. 
So what does it look like for us to partner with God in pursuing justice? That sounds like a daunting task. I mean, there's so much injustice in the world, it's hard to even know where to start. Every day we learn about new injustices, and we haven't even done anything about the ones we learned about the day before. It's such a daunting task to say, we'll stand up for justice. But there is one thing that's very clear. God strongly desires us to partner with him. The only wrong response is to turn a blind eye to injustice. In fact, God speaks very, very bluntly to this in Isaiah chapter 58. In that chapter, God's people have fasted, trying to turn their hearts to the Lord, but it seems like the Lord's not listening. They, they say, why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? And God answers their question by saying, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. He's concerned about injustice. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. So, so God's choosing not to honor their attempts to draw close to him because they've turned a blind eye to injustice. And God goes on to say this. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? God has strong words for people who fast, who pray, who seek God in his word, but then who fail to act against injustice. So when we look at the world and we see all the injustice, we may not know where to start, but it's clear that doing nothing is not a response that's pleasing to God. So we want to partner with God in pursuing justice, and it's an urgent desire, or at least it should be. I came across a story from a man named Raymond Fung. Fung, he's an evangelist in Hong Kong, and he tells about how he was speaking to a textile worker, just like an assembly line laborer, about the Christian faith, and he urged the man to come and visit the church. And the man couldn't go to church on Sunday without losing a day's wages, but he did it. And so after the service, Fung and the man went to lunch, and the man said, well... The sermon hit me. Uh, it had been about sin and about the gospel. And, and he said, what the preacher said about me was true. Laziness, violent temper, addicted to cheap entertainment. And Raymond Fung was excited, held his breath, trying to control his excitement. Had the, had the gospel message got through? But he was disappointed. The man went on. He said, nothing was said about my boss. Uh, and the preacher you know, listed all these sins. Nothing was said about how he employs child laborers, how he doesn't give us the legally required holidays. He puts on false labels. He forces us to do overtime. Now, Raymond Fung knew there were members of the management class sitting in the congregation, but nothing was said about any of those sins. So this worker agreed that he was a sinner, but he rejected the message of the church because he sensed its incompleteness. Well, how many opportunities have we seen because the way we live out the gospel is incomplete? One of the reasons I want us to study the book of Esther is because it's so timely for us. It's a story about people who have faith in God, but they live in a culture that could care less, a culture that seems stacked against them with no regard for God. Well, if you can't see parallels between that culture and our culture, then let's talk later. Esther is incredibly timely, and I think part of the reason our culture has rejected Christianity is because we're not partnering with God in pursuing justice. We talk a lot about personal sin, how Jesus is the solution for our sin problem, and rightly so. But we don't do enough to address injustice, systemic injustice. 
Yet Jesus himself is very concerned about justice. As Jesus begins his public ministry, the very first thing he does, he goes to the synagogue and he begins to teach people the very first recorded teaching we have about Jesus. Uh, Luke 4 tells us the story. Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus could have begun his ministry in a thousand different ways, but I think it's very telling that he begins his public ministry with a call to justice. Whatever good news it is that Jesus is bringing, it's good news for the poor and for the oppressed. And he tells the people that today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, that Jesus' presence brings freedom and justice. Freedom from personal sin, yes, but also freedom from the systemic injustice in the world. Does our presence in this valley bring the same kind of freedom and justice? If we want to be people who partner with God in pursuing justice, that means we have to be willing both to share and to live out the good news of Jesus. Good news for individuals who are sinners and good news that combats systemic injustice in the world. Jesus begins his public ministry by proclaiming that God sent him into the world to bring about justice. And at the end of his public ministry, Jesus tells his disciples, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus calls us to pursue justice just as he has under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. His entire ministry is bookended by justice. But can we say the same thing about ourselves? You know, this, this desire to see justice in the world, that's one of the things that spurred my wife and I to adopt. We have uh, three biological children, many of you know. We also have three children that we've adopted from China. And, and one of the reasons that we chose to adopt is because it's one way that we can make a difference in the world. We can pursue God's justice on a micro level and on a macro level. Our desire is to see redemption for these kids, kids who were, were cast aside, were discarded. And we also want to encourage other people who are called to adopt. That's one way that we've found of seeking justice, the one thing that God's called our family to. If you don't know where to start seeking justice, pray about it. Pray about how God would have you partner with him. And maybe there's a way that you can support and encourage adoptive families. Or let me encourage you to examine the opportunities at Blue Ridge Elementary. You know, Part of the reason that we at Trinity have a partnership with them is because it's an underprivileged school. If you look at a a map of poverty-related data in Walla Walla, it's all centered on the area that's served by Blue Ridge Elementary. So you can combat injustice there in a variety of ways, even things as simple as donating school supplies or donating clothing to kids in need. You can partner with God in pursuing justice however he leads you, but one thing is clear, that justice is a big part of God's work in the world. There's one more aspect of God's justice I want us to consider as we talk about what it means to put our faith in God's eternal perspective. Uh, Simply put, we can bow now or we can bow later. This passage in Esther has a warning for people like Haman who think they have it all. In a matter of 24 hours, everything changed for him. Uh, His fall could not have been predicted. He had status, wealth, position, and honor, and 24 hours later, he was disgraced and dead. 
And for those who are not willing to bow their knee, not willing to acknowledge who God is, a very similar fate could await them. Each and every one of us is guilty, guilty of rebellion against God. We're willing to put our faith in anything else besides Him. But we're often very reluctant to turn to Him. And for those who have put their faith in God through Christ, for those who have turned to Him, turned away from sin, we willingly bow ourselves to His control in our lives. We bow our hearts to Christ. But for those who don't, for those who let pride or, or status or intellectual prowess or anything else get in the way, uh, a day of reckoning will come. Just as Haman fell, each and every one of us deserves that punishment. All we can bring to the table is our own sinful choices and problems. But Christ brings healing and redemption for those who are willing to accept it. For those who aren't, a day will come in which they will even reluctantly acknowledge the truth about God and the truth about who Jesus is. The Bible tells us someday every knee will bow and everyone will eventually come to understand the truth about Christ. Well, part of partnering with God and pursuing justice means that we are passionate about sharing the gospel with people while they still have a chance to respond and turn to Him. We know ultimately those results are up to God, but we want to partner with Him in doing that work. Poetic justice, it feels really nice and neat and tidy, but that's not always how God works. Sometimes God's eternal perspective is very different from ours, and when that happens, we need to put our faith in his perspective, and be willing to partner with him in doing his work in the world. Let me pray for us. God, we are uh, grateful that you love us enough to bend to us, that you love us enough to uh, see uh, us be a part of the work that you're doing in the world, Lord. And we know you give us freedom, freedom to partner with you in any number of ways. And I pray that as we respond to your word, that we are people who would be uh, willing to listen to you, willing to partner with you, willing to uh, uh, do your work and, and do it well. We pray that you would help us to identify ways that we can pursue not only sharing the gospel with individuals, but sharing the good news that, uh, uh, that breaks the chains of systemic injustice. Thank you for the way that you love us and you care for us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue worshiping, and uh, as we do that, we'll have a chance to give our offering. We've got Jessica and Bryson up here again, and I uh, want to just give you a real quick update. Uh, Pastor Brad, you know, is still on his sabbatical, and right now they're uh, out of town. They're traveling to go visit some family on an epic road trip. They're in Georgia right now, so that's a long Long car trip, but I want to encourage you to keep praying for him, keep praying for their family. They'll be back uh, in just a couple of weeks.